I'm going to direct your attention back up to the screen really quickly, and we're going to flash some pictures up on the screen. And uh, all of these people that we're going to see are going to have one thing in common. And so after we flash through these pictures, I'm going to ask you uh, what you think that one common theme is. So Sam, if you'll spend about a second or two on each of these, just flip through them really quickly. Okay, so let me, let me read some of the names that you just saw up there for those of you who might have, have a little confusion. <clears throat> uh, Shea Guevara, number one. Uh, Martin Luther King, uh, Harriet Tubman, Steve Jobs, Nelson Mandela, Gandhi, Rosa Parks, Henry Ford, Mother Teresa, Joan of Arc, Bob Marley, yeah, and the Beatles, all right? What's the one thing that each of those people had in common? Anybody? Just shout it out. What do you think they have in common? Yeah, they're revolutionaries. So Brad, you know, even use that word revolutionaries today as he was leading worship. And they all really are revolutionaries in one way or another. Some of them played parts in violent revolutions. Some of them played parts in uh, nonviolent revolutions, but they're all revolutionaries, right? And the reason I use this is because what Jesus was calling his disciples to wasn't to wear nice clothes, wasn't necessarily to sing beautiful music, wasn't necessarily to hear great teaching or to come to sit in a building, What Jesus was calling his disciples to was he was calling them to be part of a revolution. He was calling them to be part of a revolution, and that made them revolutionaries. Uh, And that's really the the key theme for us today, is that as the church, we're called to take part in a revolution, and that makes us revolutionaries. Now, you're probably wondering where all of a sudden did we, how did we get from Church's Fried Chicken to Matthew chapter 16 to Pictures of Revolutionaries to me saying, that as the church, we're called to be part of a revolution. Then that makes each of us, each of you, revolutionaries. We'll look very quickly at verse 18. Verse 18 says this. It says, and I tell you that you are Peter. This is Jesus again talking to Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. All right. So let me, let me call time out here for, for one second and say this. Uh, Israel is laid out sort of from south to north. The Dead Sea is in the southern part of Israel, and then there's Jerusalem right here. You go up the Jordan River all the way to the Sea of Galilee. It's a few days' walk back then. And, uh, and then even further north of the Sea of Galilee, which, which is where Jesus spent a lot of his time ministering with the disciples, you go six days' uh, walk further north, and you go up to Mount Hermon, which is in the northernmost part of Israel. And uh, on Mount Hermon, um, there is a giant cave that comes out of the base of Mount Hermon, which is the headwaters to the Jordan River. So that's where the Jordan River begins and, and then goes south to the Sea of Galilee and then further south down to the Dead Sea. And uh, around that cave on the face of Mount Hermon, there were all these little enclaves that were built into a cliff wall. And there were about 100 different idols that were anywhere from this big to you know, huge idols that were, that were placed in these enclaves that were carved into the wall of the side of Mount Hermon. And not only that, but there were three temples there around Mount Hermon. And so what's interesting is Jesus, after spending some time with the disciples, calling them to follow him, you know, walking around with them, teaching them, they saw him do miracles, they heard some of the things that he was saying. Jesus basically said, hey, let's go for a walk. Let's go for a little hike. It just so happened it was a six-day hike and camping trip all the way up to the foot of Mount Hermon. They get there. Jesus asked them, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter for once, um, and I love Peter, I'm a fan, Peter for once gets it right, and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus goes, that's right. 
And upon that confession that I'm the Christ, that I'm the son of the living God, I'm going to build my, and he uses the word ecclesia, which is the word that we translate for church, right? So boom, we think church and we think, you know, red brick building, a pitched roof with, you know, this white with a little cross on the top. What's interesting though, in that day and age, what the disciples would have heard when they heard the word ecclesia is they would have heard a really a political term, right? Because the word ecclesia was used by the Greeks to talk about a crier who goes out into the streets of the cities and calls people out and says, come out here, come out to the streets. I've got something to say to you. And the reason that he called them out was for the purpose of expressing a vote of no confidence in a corrupt political leader or a corrupt political system. It was a revolt, right? And so when Jesus said, I want to build my ecclesia, he was saying the revolution that we're beginning, the revolution that I'm calling you to, to, to take part in is one where we're going to overthrow a corrupt person or a corrupt political system. That's what Jesus was saying, and that's what they would have heard. So let me, let me call time out here for a second and just say that's, that's what the disciples would have heard. So you can forgive them and maybe the Jews sometimes for thinking of Jesus as coming to inaugurate sort of this, this physical, earthly, political kingdom, although we know that's not what Jesus was coming to do, but he was indeed calling them to be part of a revolution, right? And that makes us revolutionaries. Let me ask you a quick question. Could we here at Seven Hills Fellowship be found guilty of being revolutionary? Could, could we here at Seven Hills Fellowship be found guilty of, of taking part in a revolution? Could you, whether you're uh, at Barry or whether you are working your job here in Rome, whatever you're doing, would anyone ever think that you were a revolutionary, that you were part of a revolution? You know, it's what we are called to do when we pray the Lord's Prayer, to say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We're actually praying that God would inaugurate his invisible kingdom and make it visible in this world that we're living on. What we were being called to, what Jesus was calling the disciples to was a revolution, an ecclesia. Now the question is, what kind of revolution was Jesus calling the disciples to? First of all, he was calling them to a peaceful revolution. Uh, I started off with this one because we live in a world right now with ISIS and with all sorts of scary people that really are leading these revolutions that are very dangerous and very bloody and, uh, and they're very hostile but that's not the kind of revolution that Jesus was calling his disciples to. He was calling them to a peaceful revolution. Listen to the words of Matthew 26, and then we'll read, read Matthew 5 as well. Basically, it says this, uh, and you know this, this is where they, the, the temple guards arrested Jesus on the Mount of Olives. It says, then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, again, we know that's Peter, drew it out and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels, right? Just think about that for a second. What Jesus is saying is, yeah, I called you to take part in a revolution, but it's a peaceful revolution. Listen to the words of Matthew 5. Again, this is Jesus during the Sermon on the Mount. Here's what Jesus says. He said, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, right? So Jesus is saying, you want to know how to respond to your enemy? And again, this is occupied territory, right? The Romans are a conquering, invading force, and they essentially have the Jewish people under their thumb. And what Jesus is saying to these Jewish people who he's speaking is, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You know, Jesus could have taken the disciples out into the desert 
and train them in guerrilla warfare. That's what the zealots did, but that's not at all what he did. He did not do that. And that's actually why the zealots actually didn't like him. It's probably why the Sadducees and the Pharisees didn't like him. And it's ultimately why the Jewish people of his day rejected him and had him crucified because he didn't come to lead a political revolution. He came to lead a very different type of revolution. So the question is, how are we to respond when we're offended if this is a peaceful revolution? Listen to the words of Romans chapter 12. Now, this is the most heavily theological book in the New Testament or overtly theological book. And uh, in verses, basically chapters 1 through 11, we've been given all this information by Paul, who was a former Pharisee and a brilliant, brilliant man. And Paul has said, here are the implications of the gospel. Here's the implications of the fact that you're a rebel. Here are the implications of the fact that there is a God who exists, who cares how you live. He goes through all this stuff. And then in Romans 12, he basically sums everything up. But then he talks about some of the, the morality of this revolution. And in verse 19, Paul says this. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, rather than taking matters into your own hands, rather than responding in like kind, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Time out. Okay, that's out of place a little bit, right? You need to know that's a Jewish idiom, right? And what that means is that when your fire in your house goes out at night, you go to the neighbor's house and you take a big sort of basket with you and your neighbor, you would have carried it on your head. Your neighbor would have said, hey, I'll give you some of my fire, scoop it out of my fire pit and I'll put it on the top of your, you know, your, the thing you're carrying the fire in. So it doesn't mean that you'll make him miserable and you'll make him suffer. Okay, just, it's an idiom. It means give him a gift, treat him kindly. He goes on to say, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good, right? It's a peaceful revolution. I mean, again, think about the different revolutionaries who were impacted by the teachings of Jesus. Gandhi loved Jesus, right? He wasn't a Christian, wouldn't have called himself a Christian, but he was greatly influenced. And in particular, his revolution, his nonviolent revolution was essentially established on Jesus' life. Martin Luther King, right? Was a, was a pastor. He was a Christian. And he actually called people not to be less Christian, but to be more Christian, And in calling them to be more Christian, his revolution was a non-violent revolution. It was a revolution of peace, right? It was a revolution of desiring what was best for your fellow man. As the church, we're called to take part in a revolution, and that makes us revolutionaries. It makes us peaceful revolutionaries. The next uh, aspect of this revolution is not only was it a peaceful revolution, but it was a moral revolution. Look at Matthew chapter 5. We'll go back to the section of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5 says this, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. You've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You know, it's interesting. It's very common for people to talk about Jesus and basically kind of go, ah, you know, He loves people. He wants everybody to be loving. He's not really worried about how you live. You know, he'll kind of just take a magic eraser and erase that. He's not worried about it. But what Jesus is doing here is he's actually saying, he's actually saying that we need to take the law, this law of the Old Testament, and instead of making it less relevant, we need to make it more relevant. Instead of making it less weighty, we need to make it more weighty. Instead of making it more shallow, we need to make it deeper. And that's what he's doing here when he says, look, you know you're not supposed to murder people. What, what I'm telling you is this revolution that I'm calling you to is a revolution where if you harbor anger 
and bitterness and feed it and stoke it in your heart, then that's just as bad as committing murder against someone that you ought to be loving towards and praying for, right? He goes on to say, you know, you're not supposed to commit adultery, right? That, that was a stonable offense in the Old Testament. And what Jesus is saying here is he's basically saying, I'm not here to make this, uh, this injunction to be faithful. I'm not here to make it less serious. I'm here to make it more serious. And what I'm telling you is not only are you not supposed to be unfaithful to your wife, you're not even supposed to look at some other person with lustful thoughts and to feed those thoughts and to give them a foothold in your heart. What Jesus is saying here is he's saying, this is actually a moral revolution, right? I'm taking it deeper. I'm taking it all the way down into the depths of your heart so that this morality is not just about your behavior, but it's about your heart. It's about your core desires, right? And so true Christian morality is actually revolutionary because it offends both, both ends of the morality spectrum. You know, just think for a second. In our particular world that we live in right now, you've got sort of, you know, sort of conservatives on the one end, and you've got what we would say, you know, or other people would say liberals on the other end. And you might be in either of those camps. You might classify yourself as either of those. And what Jesus does is his morality is so revolutionary that it offends both of them. Because what it does is on one end of the, sp- the spectrum, you've got the conservatives or the self-restraint people, and Jesus offends those people, right? And not only that, but you've got the self-actualization people, which, you know, maybe uh, some people would say those are the liberals on this other end of the spectrum. And Jesus offends all of them. He offends both sides of the continuum. He offends the religious conservatives because he values and he loves tax collectors and prostitutes and Romans. And they hate that because it doesn't fit with their hyper-conservative morality. Because Jesus all of a sudden is telling them to love these people who they, they think they're justified in hating. And so not only does he offend the conservatives, but he offends the liberals he offends the liberals when he restricts divorce to marital infidelity. He, he restricts and limits their self-actualization because the morality that Jesus is calling to them to is a revolutionary morality. It actually takes wrongdoing, hatred of your fellow man and infidelity, and it takes them deeper, not just on the exterior of your being, but all the way down into your hearts. What Jesus was calling the disciples to, what he's calling you and I to, is to take part in a revolution, and that makes us revolutionaries, a peaceful revolution, a moral revolution, also an intellectual revolution. Look at Romans chapter 12. Romans 12 says this, says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In other words, our tendency as human beings is to see the world, to think about the world the same way that the people around us think about it. It's called the sociology of knowledge. And so typically you end up thinking about the world, what your buddies, what your friends, what your parents think about the world. But part of what Paul is doing here is he's saying, don't conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but let your mind be transformed. And in particular, in the context, he's saying, let it be transformed by the knowledge that there's a God and that this God cares how you live. And that this God is a loving God who actually sent his son to live a perfect life that you couldn't live and to die a death he wasn't willing for you to die. And so that your mind would be changed by this thing that we call the gospel, right? So it's not just your heart, it's not just your actions, but it's a revolution that changes the way that you think. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul says this, again, this is revolutionary language, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world, right? On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds, that is intellectual strongholds. We demolish every argument and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take every captive thought to make it obedient to Christ. There's a philosophical term called fideism. And fideism basically is this, is, is a thing that says, 
you know, there are people, adherents to Christianity, who just sort of say, I just believe, right? I just have a very simple faith. And on the one hand, it's good to have faith. It's good to believe, but we're never called to a fideistic embrace of Christianity. We're never called to simply believe and not think tough thoughts or not think deep thoughts or not embrace intellectualism or not embrace philosophical thought. We're actually called to do exactly that and yet still believe after we've worked our way through those tough philosophical questions. And so ultimately, revolutionary Christianity is actually very intellectual, right? So in this room this morning, we have Barry professors, right? These are people who went through college at great schools. They went and did their master's degree at great schools. They went and did their PhD at fantastic schools. These are people who are brilliant. They're people who think very deeply. One of my best, uh, one of my best friend's brother and a friend that I played soccer with is a philosophy professor at, uh, at, at Princeton, right? He's a philosophy professor. He's one of the smartest people I know. He may be one of the smartest people in America for all that I know. And he's a believer, right? You don't have to be simple. You don't have to be foolish. Rather, this, uh, this revolution of the gospel, this revolution of the church is one that shaped our minds and how we think. I was up on the campus of um, the University of Virginia a few years ago um, with a friend of mine who's a pastor up there. And uh, they have a quad on the University um, uh, of Virginia. And on that quad, the students get to elect or vote for the professors. Like I think there's eight different houses on the quad. And they get to vote for their favorite professors to live on that quad and to take part in the community life of the University of Virginia. And as I was walking across the campus with my buddy who's a pastor up there at Charlottesville, he said, you know what's really interesting about this is that three of the eight professors who live on the quad are not only Christians, but they're elders in the church that I'm a pastor of, this PCA church. In other words, this great academic intellectual institution. And here on the quad, three of the most highly regarded professors are actually not only Christians, but they're Christians at this, this church that's in the same family of churches that we are. Again, this revolutionary Christianity, this revolutionary uh, movement that Jesus is calling us to is not a simple one. It's not a foolish one. It's not one where you shut your brain off, but rather it's one that changes not only the way that we think, not only the way that we feel, not only the way we act, but the way that we think. It changes our minds. As the church, we're called to take part in a revolution and that makes, each of, that makes each of us, it makes each of you revolutionaries, right? So it's supposed to be peaceful, a peaceful revolution. It's a moral revolution. It's an intellectual revolution. It's also a racial revolution. Listen to the words of Galatians chapter 3, verses 27 through 29. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you're all one. In Christ Jesus, one of the things that Jesus did, one of the things that Paul did, one of the things that Peter did was over and over again, what each of them did is they basically said, this revolution that we're taking, a part, taking part in is a revolutionary that, that basically a revolution that, that erases those former lines of separation, right? The Jews hated no one more than they hated the Samaritans. They actually hated the Samaritans more than they hated the Romans, although they hated both. And the reason they hated the Samaritans is because they thought the Samaritans were sort of half-breeds and traitors. And part of what uh, Paul does here and part of what Jesus did with the woman at the well, with various Samaritans he ran into, is he basically said, this revolution is a revolution that acknowledges that every human being is created in the image of God. And because every human being, red and yellow, black and white, they're all precious in his sight. They all deserve to be treated with dignity because they're all created in the image of God. And this was earth shattering. This was radical. This was revolutionary back then, especially in light of the fact that the Jews felt they were completely justified 
in hating these other people groups. But this revolution that Jesus was calling his followers to was a racial revolution, a revolution that said, you got to love everybody. You got to respect everybody. You got to treat everybody with dignity because we're all created in the image of my heavenly father. Last thing, this revolution that we're being called to this, uh, this, uh, this, this calling to be revolutionaries is also a religious revolution. Listen to the words of Galatians 4 and Luke 5. Galatians 4 says this. Basically goes along and he says, he's talking about how it is we come into this relationship with God. And he says that we might receive adoption to sonship. Verse 6. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out Abba, Father, So you're no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you're his child, God has made you also an heir. Part of what Paul was doing was he was echoing what Jesus had already said as he taught the disciples. But he basically said, this religious revolution is one where you are saved, not by adhering to the law, but rather you're saved by grace. This revolution is one, not where you gain God's favor by obedience, but rather He gives you his favor and obedience is the byproduct of the fact that he has accepted you, the fact that he has loved you. And part of what Jesus was doing, part of what Paul is doing is he's saying, this gives you the ability to come to your heavenly father on a deeply personal level and to call him Abba, father. And I'm telling you, the Jews, the Pharisees, they were freaked out by this. Like they got mad, they got angry, they got frustrated. It drove them nuts that Jesus would say, you can come to, to, to God, the author of reality, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and you can call him Abba, which most of you probably know this, some of you don't, would, be, would have been the equivalent to us calling our fathers when we were little kids, calling our dads daddy. And, and what Jesus is saying here is he's saying this revolution is a religious revolution where all of a sudden your heavenly father isn't this distant being with a long white beard and flowing white hair, sitting on a throne with a huge hammer in his hand and a, you know, a spear that shoots lightning bolts, but rather your heavenly father is someone that you can come to and you can call daddy in the voice of a child and the voice of a little child. This was revolutionary. Not only that, but in Luke, we see Jesus saying this. He says, <clears throat> after that, he went out, this is Jesus, and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me, right? One of the other peoples that the Jews, the religious people that they hated were tax collectors because they were teaming up with the Romans, right? And so they were considered to be traitors. And so Jesus comes and sees this guy named Levi, who's a tax collector, who eventually becomes Matthew, by the way. And uh, it says this, it says, and he left everything behind. So Matthew slash Levi gets up and leaves his tax collecting booth behind, got up and began to follow him, Jesus. And Levi gave a big reception for him in his house. And there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with them. The Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? Sinners would have been, you know, prostitutes and, uh, and people of ill repute, all these other people. And Jesus answered and said to them, so Jesus overhears them and he says this, it's not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance, Right? And it just, it turned religion on its head because religion, whether it was 2000 years ago or whether it's today, religion always says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted, right? Or I'm good, therefore I'm accepted. Or I've got everything in a row, therefore I'm accepted. And Christianity always says exactly the opposite. Christianity always says, I'm accepted, therefore I'm good. 
I'm accepted, therefore I obey. It's the fact that God loves me, the sinful, broken, icky uh, person of ill repute. It's the very fact that God says, I love you, you're my child. I love you, you're my daughter. I love you, you're my son. It's, it's that very declaration of love that gives you the ability and the desire to even please and to live for him. This religious uh, revolution was just that. It was revolutionary, right? To call God father was radical. It was blasphemous to the Jews. That God was father was seeking, that that God and father was seeking to save the most sinful of humanity was unthinkable. It was offensive. The teaching that we aren't saved by our goodness or our lack of badness, but rather we're saved by trusting in the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, those ideas were, they were revolutionary, right? But that's exactly what Jesus is doing. He's calling his disciples, he's calling you and he's calling me to take part in this, this revolution. It's, it's, a, it's a peaceful revolution. It's a moral revolution. It's an intellectual revolution. It's a racial and relational revolution. It's a religious revolution. That's what Jesus was calling the disciples to. That's what he's calling us to. It might involve sitting in this room and wearing nice clothes. It might involve singing hymns. It might involve prayer. It might involve all of those things. It probably does in many cases. But ultimately, as a church, we're called to take part in a revolution. And that makes us revolutionaries. Let's take one moment and let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that Jesus constantly um, pushes us into discomfort and, uh, and pushes us to <clears throat> to change the way that we think and, uh, and pushes us to change the way that we feel and pushes us um, out of our old patterns into new patterns. And all the while, Father, the call is, uh, is to embrace you not only as our Abba, Father, uh, but also to embrace you as our King. Uh, to Father, to, to embrace you um, not only as, um, as our husband, uh, Father, but also to embrace you as the author of, of reality. And Father, let, let these realizations change not only the way that we feel, not only the way that we behave, but even the way that we, we think. Father, I pray that you would empower the people in this room this morning, myself included, um, not to see ourselves <clears throat> involved in the church as this squeaky clean group of people who have it all together and only vote uh, according to one side of the political continuum, Father. But rather, Father, I pray that you would let this, uh, this truth today, that we were called to be part of this ecclesia, this, this revolution. And Father, that we would indeed see ourselves as revolutionaries, praying that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done first and foremost in our own hearts and then into our families and then into our community and all the way to the ends of the earth. Father, I pray that we would follow you, that we would follow your son, Jesus, our leader, our Savior. In his name we pray all these things today. Amen. Again, thank you for being with us this morning at Seven Hills. Um, I very intentionally left some serious loose ends hanging from that sermon. Um, what about the military? What about government? What about politics? Um, uh, where you find the answers to those questions will be tonight in community groups. And so I'm going to toss that hot potato onto those various leaders. Speaking of which, the questions for the community groups will be found on the table, on the connection card table right behind this first section. Um, now, um, now receive the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face um, to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace. Amen.